we need to be really crisp, especially in a hybrid work environment, about here's exactly what we expect you to deliver. Because what I love about what's happened over the past two years is it has divorced delivery from visibility. And it means that you need to focus on, did Susie get done what she said she would get done or not? Whether she did it at three in the morning, whether she did it managing her family in a way that you wouldn't have normally managed it, couldn't care less. Did Susie get done the job that we agreed she would do? I'm Ira Wolf. Welcome to another episode of Geek Skeezers Googleization, a show from the People Forward Network. And I'm Jason Cochran. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the heart and soul of crucial conversations focused on helping you reimagine your tomorrow and exploring the convergence of technology, people, and work. On this episode, you are going to hear from international thought leader, Mark Efron. As the founder and president of Talent Strategy Group, Mark leads the firm's global consulting, education, and publishing businesses. Mark co-authored the Harvard Business Review publishing best-selling book, One Page Talent Management. Sounds like that's something many people would need these days. And it's often been called the Talent Management Bible. Companies worldwide apply its discipline of science-based simplicity, accountability, and transparency. Mark's new book from Harvard Business, Eight Steps to High Performance, is quickly approaching bestseller status. Mark also founded and publishes Talent Q magazine and founded the New Talent Management Network. It should come as no surprise with all of Mark's expertise and wisdom that we're going to discuss the future of talent management and HR as we continue to navigate these never normal times. Ira, here's something our, our listeners might not know. In the Avanti Everywhere Workplace report that just came out this month, the data indicated that a third of all worldwide employees will work remotely by 2024, and that working remotely is preferred over a promotion by 71% of folks. Similarly, a recent analysis from LinkedIn's economic graph team found that a third of U.S. companies had open roles for remote workers in January, and those job postings were more popular than ones for on-site roles. In fact, remote job postings attracted two and a half times the views and 2.7 times the applications that on-site jobs did based on the, the paid LinkedIn job listings. And so it's really clear that we've officially entered the era of work flexibility. And in this tug of war over where people want to work, they got a taste of freedom and they're refusing to give it up without a fight. And Jason, we've heard of all about that from the Every Place Workforce, that it's now a workplace without borders. Nearly half of all workers find that remote work, hybrid work offers them the work life or life work flexibility that they want. And most of our listeners are probably very, very familiar and living this day to day, the great resignation or the great reshuffle, the great new experience. And the Everywhere Workplace revealed that 25% of workers said they plan to quit their jobs in the next few months. It's amazing. This, and that number skyrockets for Gen Z. So it's precisely why we're excited to have Mark as our guest today on the Geek Skeezers and Googleization show. So without further ado, let's welcome Mark to the show. Very happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. 
Mark, we introduce you to our listeners as a thought leader and an expert in talent strategy. So can you give us the speed dating version of how you became that expert? First, I will eschew the title of expert, but I'll uh, maybe just share how I try to stay current on this topic. First is I'm an old guy. And after 30 years of doing this work, hopefully you pick up a few insights and tidbits about how talent and companies should work well together. Secondly, over those 30-ish years, I've tried really hard to stay current on two things, starting with what does the best academic science say about how people operate, how companies operate, and how people and companies operate together. So really trying to start from a solid base of facts. But then I've just had the good fortune of working not only in companies as a head of talent or a senior HRBP, but consulting around the globe, every size company, every industry, and hopefully distilling some knowledge from those experiences. And a lot of it is just tied together with a, a curiosity about how do we help people and organizations to work more effectively together. And Mark, in those 30 years, have you ever seen as much monumental change in a short period of time as what we've seen over the last two years? So that easy setup on no, I have not. And I think the question I'm going to, I bet we'll dig into this today is kind of where has that change taken place? Because it's really easy. And I think when we were all kind of in the midst of the pandemic last year to say the world has completely changed. We have to manage people in a completely different way. And there's probably a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that. So I think it's smart practitioners, smart leaders are really trying to sort through what exactly should we do differently, but where do the things that we used to do actually still apply quite well in organizations? And in your book, The Eight Steps to High Performance, you kind of list out what it takes to have a high performer's mindset and to excel at work. I'm sure a lot of the things that are needed in order to be successful right now come from your book. Can you share what some of those tips and strategies are with our listeners? Sure. When we talk about the high performer's mindset, that's really before you even do anything at work to try to be a high performer. It's the way you're approaching being successful. And this has actually become strangely controversial because the first thing that I talk about when we talk about a high performer's mindset is you're probably going to work more hours than other people. Now, I think that's a truism. I think it's really difficult to say you're going to be a high performer over time without probably having more reps in place than other people. But there's a lot of pushback right now saying, how can you possibly say that? It's not about hours. It's about results. Well, yes, but there's some correlation. And it's not fair because not everyone is equally able to put in more hours. Also true, but not necessarily distracting from the key point. So the first point of being a high performer is saying, yeah, I'm probably going to need to sacrifice some stuff I enjoy doing to do other things that allow me to be more successful at work. I might not get to see my favorite sports team as much as I want, maybe not as much time with my family as I would like. I'm going to dedicate some of that time to doing things that benefit me at work. And the other part of having that high performer's mindset is recognizing high performance is always relative. Meaning if we're all working together and I hit 120% of my goals and Ira hits 140% of his goals and Jason hits 160% of his goals, we all had a good year, but I'm the lowest performer of the group. 
So that high performer's mindset means you understand you're going to put in some time and probably more time than other people. You're going to not do maybe some of the things you enjoy doing quite as much. And even if you do all those things, you might still not be at on the gold medal podium because somebody else outperformed you. Mark, it's so interesting as you're talking about that. And I spend a, a lot of time talking about adaptability. And a core part of that is about the fixed and growth mindset. So it sounds like when you're talking about a high performer, they have that growth mindset. They're always looking to grow. There's only more challenges and opportunity that are at the forefront. But I'm also looking at what you just shared seems to be contrary to that shift to life-work balance. So high performers are tending to, you're saying, I got to give that up. And that seems to be the baby boomer world. And Gen Z and millennials and many baby boomers are saying, I've had enough of that rat race, the corporate world. I'm going to spend more time with my grandkids, playing sports, pursuing a hobby, doing whatever I want to do. Can, can you square that for us? Yeah, I think those are wonderful choices that, that people are making. And to our earlier conversation, certainly a substantial and meaningful shift over the past couple of years in, in folks who are making that change. Now, let's go back to when I said a lot of things have not changed. We need to kind of differentiate what's changed and not changed in the workplace. Companies still want people who work really hard, who engage in the right behaviors, who are willing to sacrifice, who are ambitious, that hasn't changed. So the demand side hasn't changed. The supply side, to what you just mentioned, has changed. And so the question is, how do we match those two things? Because if I'm an employer and there used to be 100 people willing to sign up to really contribute, to sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera, and now there are only 50, okay, so what does that mean for how I have to manage? It doesn't mean I change my standards. But what it probably does mean is I need to think in maybe more tiered categories that it's not only that it's the person who will completely dedicate themselves to to work that I need. What are a few other categories that involve slightly less sacrifice, but where I still find value? And how do I describe what I'll call as the deal for each of those categories? So the high potential deal is easy. IRA, you're a high potential. You're doing a bunch of stuff for us. Here's this huge investment we're going to make in you. And we both love that deal. What does the deal look like one step below that? What does a high performer deal look like? Ira isn't interested in, in moving up, but man, he's really good at his job. Cool. What's the deal for that? Well, maybe it's, you know, Ira wants semi-retirement. He's happy to give us the best 30 hours a week he can, but that's it. Okay. Well, what's the deal for that? And I think that's where we need to have a meeting of the minds in uh, what companies are offering and what job seekers are, are seeking is you're not going to not likely going to, uh, put in your best 30 hours and get the same recognition and accolades as somebody who puts in 50 hours. Again, let's assume equal output. And so how do we set up that conversation to say, given what you're willing to give to us as an employee, here's what we're willing to give back as an employer. A lot of high performers are leaving the workforce voluntarily, retiring, they're out. So how do companies deal with recognizing and growing the high potentials versus, hey, we already know this person's solid, but they're either left our company or left the workforce. Let's start with this. The path to potential flows through performance. So you are not likely going to be a high potential unless you are already a high performer. So what's the definition of high performer? I like to say that a high performer is someone who consistently performs at the 75th percentile compared to their peers over time. Meaning it's not that you had a good year and then a bad year and then a good year. You're always good. 
at that point, then we can say, do we think he can move up? Because being the best international tax director doesn't mean you can be CFO. So the question is, okay, Jason's a great international tax director. What do we need from somebody who is global director of tax? Do we think he can show us the behaviors around that? And that's where I find most organizations grossly overcomplicate life. They'll come up with a 48-page competency model to describe what it takes to get from tax manager to tax director instead of saying, what are the four things that differentiate brilliant people at this company? And let's just start there. Let's just and, and the easy way to get to that, and we do this all the time, let's just ask our executives. If Jason's an executive and I'm sitting across from you three years from now and you're telling me about Ira, your highest potential leader, and you just love Ira's performance and delivery and behaviors, and I say, hey, Jason, what are the three or four things that Ira has done over the past few years that have really differentiated him from other great people at the company? You're probably going to quickly say, oh, he's good at A and B and C. Cool. Let's capture what you just said in that language, not in consultant language, not in corporate comms language, in the language that you use to describe and say that's the model. Because that's the other challenge when we talk, Ira, about high potential is oftentimes we just grossly overcomplicate that. Instead of saying high potential is you're a brilliant performer, plus you demonstrate the behaviors that we think are going to allow you to be successful at the next level. That's really the simplest and probably most science-based definition of that. And that's so interesting, Mark. That second piece that you shared about the behavior, I have to imagine that's so important. I know just in the work that I've done, I've heard from so many business leaders where when they're looking at who's going to become that next manager of a certain department and where some of them have made mistakes where they might only look at performance and they're not necessarily looking at behaviors or human skills and that person gets elevated into that leadership position and all of a sudden they're not able to lead others very well. It's interesting, even though we've known about this for years and years and years, my clients still trip over this every day, which is promoting the best shoe salesman into the shoe store manager. It's like, those are different jobs. There's nothing wrong with being the best shoe salesperson. Let's make sure you're making a ton of money and you're super engaged in your job. And let's ask you if you want to be the shoe store manager. And let's have a clear point of view about here are the four things that make a good shoe store manager. I think that's where we still trip is we conflate performance with potential instead of saying potential is performance plus something else. And again, let's get clear on the few things, not the hundred things, the few things that really differentiate what that plus looks like at the next level. Mark, you said that to you, a high performer is someone who reaches that 75th percentile. They're better than 75% of the rest of the people. That means that companies have to have metrics in place. They have to have a way to measure performance. So up to this point, that has been a struggle. I've been in the business 26 years. That was a topic 26 years ago. It's still a topic. And now it's got enormously complicated because now people aren't showing up at your doorstep. You can't manage by walking around. You can manage by, by having screens around, but you can't manage that. What have you seen change in how companies are managing performance or measuring performance? And next is, what do you see coming up with the shift to hybrid work? I'll go in reverse order. Here's the single largest, most powerful thing that a leader can do to actually allow them to measure their employees' performance. Set better goals. It is amazing how horrible, I love my clients, it is amazing how horrible most of my clients are at setting a few 
big, challenging goals for each of their team members. And if you haven't set a few big, challenging, measurable goals, then yeah, you can't measure performance at all. Unless it's, yeah, you did a pretty good job this year. You did a very good job this year. It's probably not the precision that we're interested in. So if we're going to measure, we need to do a much better job at goal setting. By goal setting, I don't mean activity listing, which is what most managers do. Here are the 38 things I'm doing this year. When we help clients with goal setting, it's one of the three, maybe four big deliverables you are going to provide to the organization this year. And a deliverable is we're going to increase customer sat by this number. We're going to deliver this project at this point in time. It's an outcome that somebody really cares about. It's not you doing the job that we already paid you to do. So I would start by saying we need to be really crisp, especially in a hybrid work environment, about here's exactly what we expect you to deliver. Because what I love about what's happened over the past two years is it has divorced delivery from visibility. And it means that you need to focus on, did Susie get done what she said she would get done or not? Whether she did it at three in the morning, whether she did it managing her family in a way that you wouldn't have normally managed it, couldn't care less. Did Susie get done the job that we agreed she would do? And so I think the more we can focus managers on those three or four crisp goals, it's going to be much easier. Hybrid environment, non-hybrid environment, work from home, work from anywhere. Did you get done what you said you would get done? How do organizations accelerate some of those processes? How do they try to do that at scale to become more efficient and a better job at, at knowing who to acquire and then how to work them through becoming high potentials and then high performers? I think a, a few things, and I'm not an expert in talent acquisition, so this is more speaking from what I know, not a, a deep well of expertise, but I do think that a more science-guided process to selection is going to be beneficial for almost every organization. There's still a lot of sloppy intake going on out there. I think we all know all the things that can go wrong in the hiring process. Basic cognitive and personality tools do a really, really good job of helping you to understand, is someone going to be a higher performer here or not? Are they going to be somebody who aligns with the way that we like to get work done? There's a lot of commonly available, well-validated, easy-to-use tools that allow us to do that. Once we have the appropriate raw material coming into the organization, um, then it's actually relatively straightforward to say, do we understand the path to build someone from freshmen coming into the organization to general manager? Have we thought through what we call that talent production line? Do we know what the eight steps are that take you from 22-year-old college grad to country general manager? And are we disciplined in moving you through those eight steps so that you become that country general manager five years before you might have on your own? So you, you teed that up really well. So we have a lot of listeners that are, are probably taking baby steps. They're, they're saying, yeah, we know we've been working on this performance management thing for, for years. I'm not sure we have the time to go through all eight steps, but where would you start? Let's think of performance management in three big buckets, goal setting, coaching, reviewing. Goal setting is actually relatively easy. Here's a single most powerful starting place. No more than four goals. Just flat out. You can have four goals that better be big goals. that better be aligned to what the organization is trying to achieve. Simply saying, we're going to cap your goals. And if you try and put bullets underneath each one, we're going to tell you thanks anyways. That's not what we asked for. So forcing people to focus on the few big deliverables is a 
really wonderful way of saying, we know what matters. We know we now know what to coach you on. We now know what to evaluate you on. But also, sometimes leaders need some help in compressing activities into deliverables. Because if you've been writing a list of deliverables all your life, you think that's goal setting. So maybe a little bit of training around, I know you're busy, but what are you really trying to do? So let's help you to write that goal in the right way. But let's start there with just uh, helping leaders to understand that goal setting is about the few big things you're going to try to achieve during the year and help you write those goals in a way that we, we can measure. But then how do we keep you focused on that goal and aligned to that goal during the year? I will give your listeners our favorite coaching tip, which we call two plus two coaching. I really should have made this into a product and sold it, but we just kind of gave it away instead. Two plus two coaching is this simple. Once a quarter, you have to sit down with each of your employees. You're going to discuss two things. First, you're going to make two observations against their goals. Not two observations against every goal. Simply, here are the two most important things that I want to comment on. Could be, hey, Ira, on that new marketing project, I hear you're being super inclusive, really managing different time zones well, listening to people's opinions, great job. Ira, on that marketing strategy, it's like a month behind schedule, not sure what's going on there, but we need to pick that up. So two comments and the most important things that can kind of accelerate you, redirect you on goals. And then two, in Marshall Goldsmith language, feed forward comments. So two things you can do more of, less of, differently going forward. It might be, hey, Ira, I know you're new to the firm. This is a relationship-based place. Make sure that you're having a, a virtual lunch or coffee at least once a week with a new person to get to know them. And Ira, you've got a bunch of big projects coming up. You might want to take this really cool project management course that we have to help make sure that you're skilled up. Two plus two. Now, is that brilliant coaching? No, that's 50th percentile coaching. But if every single leader in all of your listeners' companies did just that once a quarter, I guarantee you there are pennies per share waiting to be squeezed out of those conversations. And then end of the year, if you've done those two things right, if you've set a few big challenging goals and you've had these quarterly two plus two conversations, end of the year should be fairly straightforward uh, in terms of we've been talking about what you were supposed to do. You've gotten clear advice about what's working well, what's not working well, and here's how we can do something different next year. Nearly all of our listeners in some way, I'm sure they're struggling with keeping people too. Once they are there, how do they keep them longer? And it sounds like what you're alluding to is almost something around like career paths. Like we'll take you from here to here and we're going to have a process and a very specific approach for how we can help you grow. Do you see that as being one of the biggest differentiators for employers is having a repeatable process like that? that's scalable, but also can be differentiated for each person to help lay out the future for them of what it looks like in the organization and their role? Short answer, Jason, is, is yes. I think how we execute that in companies probably needs a bit of work. In, in most of the organizations I work with, development is the worst process, and it's an order of magnitude below the next worst process. I think that a few things would help there. One is actually hold managers accountable for ensuring that their team members have a very high quality development plan. So there, there's zero accountability in most organizations around that. But secondly, let's shift our thinking to experience-based thinking. So career paths, they were lovely. I never had one, but I'm sure some people did. They're gone. But experiences are still out there. So we're big fans of kind of experience maps and saying, oh, you want to be a brilliant marketer? Okay, we see there being about 12 different experiences that help shape a great marketer. They might be jobs, they might be projects, but these are the building blocks of your resume. And to your retention question, Jason, 
make sure that your best talent is always perceiving themselves as being the biggest, juiciest developmental experience they can get. Because at the end of the day, when you look at all the surveys out there about why people leave, it's normally around, I didn't see any opportunities. So one of the things I always recommend to our clients is today, think about every high potential leader you have and answer the question of, are they in the biggest, most developmental experience they can be in right now? Uh, If anyone is not, make that change in the next three months because that is a huge retention risk right there. And that's a lot tougher than just giving them an extra 10% in salary. But I guarantee you anyone can beat whatever comp offer you make today, but they probably can't beat a really well-crafted experience. What I hear you saying, Mark, is that there's a lot of change that's going to be coming down the pike, both from individuals, they're going to have to reskill, upskill, gain some new abilities, but also the organizations. I mean, we've talked a lot about the the management behavior and, and talent strategy, but we need to change behaviors and the, the cultures are going to have to change. And when I say culture, it's how we manage, but it's also how we compensate, how we reward, how we recognize. I think it brings up a, an especially salient point given the changes we've had in the past couple of years into our earlier conversation about maybe there are different tiers of contribution that didn't exist before. We need to be very thoughtful in companies about how do we match those different tiers of contribution with different kind of packages of, of rewards and recognition. And maybe people want to be rewarded or recognized in a different way. Maybe some people value time off more than they do an extra five grand. We need to have those insights so we can start to craft more customized packages to say, here's what we think is a great package for you. It might not be identical to anybody else's package in the organization, but given what you've said you want, what we need from you as an employer, this feels like a really good way to make sure we're both getting what we need. I still see a lot of really overstructured comp processes and a lot of just really over-standardization of everything from from benefits to to how we manage time. Is that the biggest challenge that you're seeing right now in terms of talent strategy, Mark, with most organizations? I would suggest the biggest challenge I'm seeing in talent strategies that companies don't have one. In fact, I just put it on an article a week or so ago on talent strategy And I put that out, one, because our name is a talent strategy group. And after 10 years, we didn't have a talent strategy article. It seemed like a bit of a miss. But then also, when I go into our clients and I say, hey, what's a talent strategy? They either stare at their shoes or they hand me a list of the 20 things they're doing that year, neither of which qualifies as a talent strategy. So I think the primary challenge is getting clear about a few big questions. Do we know what type of talent we need to achieve our strategy, our business strategy? That sounds like a really obvious question. I guarantee you there's not a disciplined thought process around that in most organizations. So given that we're trying to expand into Latin America, cool. Do you know what you need from people to enable you to do that? Are you crystal clear about that? That's how you should be organizing that strategy. So I think the starting point has to be, do we even know what we're trying to produce in our organization in terms of the the qualities and capabilities? Then we can figure out how do we actually attract and retain and develop those people. As Jason and I tell every week, and our listeners are probably getting sick and tired of hearing this, is we spend 40 minutes with with our guests and we, we're just starting. We, we have so much to uncover. We just got the tip of the iceberg. So I, I do hope you'll come back and do this again. Uh, but we got a question. When we have you back, 12 months from now, spring of 2023, is this still going to be the same challenge or do you anticipate there's going to be a different challenge companies are going to face? Here's the one thing I'm anxiously waiting. I think we we simply need to wait another year is 
what are the lasting changes from the pandemic? Because we're still kind of at the tail end. I think it's really difficult to say, oh, the world has been shaped in way X or way Y. I think we need a little bit of time for things to sort out. And that goes to, I think, the big question that you mentioned earlier around remote or virtual and how is that going to play out? Because I think that dictates so many of the other choices that we've talked about uh, over the past half hour or so in terms of where people work and how people work. So hopefully we'll have a little more settling around that question. And that, I think, will provide a lot of guidance for the other choices that we make around talent. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing uh, how quickly things are changing. There was just a McKinsey article, and they talked about what was different about this crisis, about the pandemic, was not the crisis and not the magnitude of the change, but the duration of the change. This crisis wasn't a weather event. It wasn't an earthquake. It wasn't even our wars that we've had. We're into the Ukraine war about a month, but even the Iran and Iraq events, there are a few days and it's over and people got tired of it and it moved off the headlines. But this completely threw it in a wrench into change and people understanding that. And there's a lot of people that are up for, and I'll, I'll use McKinsey's word, there's an existential threat to many organizations because I've described it many times as that the talent management, performance management, talent acquisition strategies, or the lack of them, it was a pretty fragile infrastructure, but we got by. And the pandemic ripped the Band-Aid off. It pulled back the curtain and realized there wasn't even a wizard behind the curtain. There wasn't a lot of of anything. So there's going to be a, a lot of dramatic changes. This goes incredibly fast. We thank you for being here. Before we take off. Jason, do you want to lead with our lightning round, the favorite part of our show? Yeah, absolutely. So Mark, we're going to ask you three questions that will help our listeners get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. So what did you think you would be when you grew up? I thought I would be a journalist because I really like to write. But unfortunately, like most things in life, I had a preference and I never did much about it. And so I didn't become a journalist, but I I just kind of kept writing in whatever opportunity I had. And eventually it led to books. So I guess I'm a writer, but uh, not exactly a journalist. What would your classmates be surprised to see about you now? That I could bench 250 pounds. I was never the big guy in school. And so they'd probably be a little surprised that I had shifted my approach from uh, uh, slightly from books to brawn. High performance and becoming an athlete and in health and endurance. I love it. That's awesome. How about uh, what's something that you had to learn that you weren't very good at? And that I'm still not good at, which is networking. And I, I tell people, don't don't tell the folks at LinkedIn, but I tell folks that LinkedIn should charge a lot more money uh, because they enabled me to move past my fear of networking because now I can do it by clicking a button instead of having to talk to a live person. And so uh, I've got a, a really big network and it's uh, primarily due to the, the good folks at LinkedIn. So I probably owe them a percentage of our revenues. Mark, how can people get a hold of you? How can they reach your company? How can they reach you personally? All of our great articles, videos, research is at talentstrategygroup.com. If they want to reach me, they can do it through that same site. So everything's free. Marshall Goldsmith taught me well. Give it all away so uh, they can go there. And I think there's a few events that we may be crossing paths, and uh, hopefully uh, we can meet face-to-face. Absolutely. We try to have at least one event a year that helps to make the HR profession better. We have one in in 2022 with Dave Ulrich. We'll probably hopefully have one around the world and other places to focus on the, the same outcome. How do we make HR even more effective? Jason, uh, again, another great guest. 
fascinating time goes so fast. Some really rich, interesting conversations that we didn't think of before. What did you hear? I know you follow Mark pretty closely. What did you learn today that you didn't know before? The important distinction between high performers and high potentials and what that path looks like. Listening to Mark's detail, the process, the steps, the tactics that they have for how they do that was a level of detail I hadn't heard before. Probably like most folks, I hear of performance management and I think of manager one-to-ones or you hear about the dreaded annual performance review. But to hear the, the depth and the breadth of detail that he went into in terms of understanding what people's skills are currently and how you take them to where they're wanting to go in terms of the type of role and contributions they want to have in the organization, that was really eye-opening for me. Yeah, I really appreciated where he came up with a pretty simple measure of how do you determine somebody who's a high performer and really being in the top 25%. So often, I think companies are looking for that purple squirrel. And, you know, we're going to clone the person at the top. And so often in benchmarking and studies and that we've done with assessments, and we have a lot of data around that, we found that oftentimes the number one, maybe number two, number three ranked person is not the person that you want to clone. They got their unique experience, right time, right place, good support system, whatever it was. But the people a little bit lower than that top one, two percent, but still vastly exceeded expectations. So the fact is that you're looking at the top 25 percentile of people. Those are, are considered your high performers. And then also, I really appreciated the way he approached it when I asked about compare the high performer and the high potential, and he immediately went to performance. He says, you have to have, even high potentials have to have performance. That's why they were recognized as high potentials. So there had to be in maybe a lesser criteria, lesser goals. And I, I really like his simplicity of goals. What are your four goals? The other thing that shocked me too was when he said the biggest problem organizations have is they don't have a talent strategy. They think they do, but then he went on to describe what an actual talent strategy is to achieve the desired outcomes. And that was a big aha moment for me as well. And I'm sure it probably is for several of our listeners too. And I'm sure we can go on and on and repeat the whole whole episode again. Uh, But we need to wrap things up, Jason. So let's take it away. I'm Jason Cochran. You've been listening to Geeks, Geezers, Googleization. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. Until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans. <laughs>